Please open your Bibles to the book of Mark, chapter 15, beginning in the 16th verse. We've been in Mark's gospel for over a year, close to two years. And Mark's been taking us on a journey that leads to the cross, and we're there today, hence the uh, black attire. There's much to celebrate about the cross, and yet much to grieve. It's a bittersweet picture. I want you to consider a time that you experienced rejection. Everybody in this room has uh, somewhere to go to. You may not want to go there this morning because it's painful. We're talking about very powerful, painful emotions. Maybe if, if you're very young and you, you're, you're here, maybe rejection was uh, you wrote an essay or a story or did some art and entered it in a contest and they said, no, no thanks. And you experienced a little bit of rejection. Maybe your parents have always enjoyed everything that you ever did. And you get out into the world and somebody, not your parents, gave you a taste of reality. Yeah, you're not that good. You're not that talented. Maybe you were on a, a sports team when you were young and you thought you should back clean up. And you found out you're really not that good. In fact, the coach was like, boy, the rules are I have to play this kid for two innings. Where can we put him where he'll do the least amount of damage? And you get past that. But as you get older, you experience more hurtful, deeper rejection. Unrequited love. You love somebody, and they say, well, I like you, but not that much. Maybe a spouse saying, well, I used to love you, not so much anymore. I've heard from people in marital breakup where there's kids involved that the spouse who stays with the kids and the other spouse doesn't want any visitation rights, they're more hurt for their children often than they're hurt for themselves. It's bad enough that you'd rejected me, but, but the kids. So I'm digging up very powerful emotions for some of you. And as painful as these memories are, we have to understand that because we are sinful ourselves, any time we're rejected, our sin nature contributes in some way. You have to be real careful with this emotion because it's easy to slip into victimhood and pity parties, self-pity. Nobody likes me. Everyone hates me. Nobody loves me. It's a terrible place to go. It's a prideful place, but it doesn't look prideful and everybody wants to gather around you to help and it just feeds, feeds it. 
We also, because of our fear of rejection, try to beat people to the punch. I won't give you a chance to reject me. I'll reject you first. Or I'll build a wall around my heart and not let anybody in intimately. And you crave intimacy in your relationships, but at the same time you're so afraid of rejection that you push people away and then get mad at them for not giving you the very thing that you want, not knowing that you're the one keeping people from having intimacy with you. We do that it's not you, it's me thing, because we don't want to feel bad about rejecting people. And on and on the list goes. It's very sad, this destruction of our relationships, all because of our sinfulness, our pride, our fear of man, our fear of rejection. If we're honest with ourselves, and don't show your hands, but I could ask how many people are honestly 100% satisfied with all your human relationships on earth? I don't think we would get any hands. Something's lacking. Something's missing. Some, what is the missing element? Have you ever had a relationship that's going so well and yet you're like, I don't want this to end. But if you've been in a relationship with anyone long enough, you know eventually there's going to be a disagreement or some kind of falling out or some kind of fight or some kind of misunderstanding. And... Sometimes that person will ask you a question and you're like, I don't want to answer that one truthfully. Everything's so good right now. Let's not rock the boat. And yet that's that kind of depth, that kind of trust, that kind of going places that are scary to go is what sanctifies us and brings us closer and closer to Christ. Now, as that as our background, you have to understand that Christ being rejected is completely different than our experiences of rejection. Why? Because there's absolutely nothing about Jesus Christ worthy of rejection. That ought to tell you something about humanity. That ought to tell you something about your own endeavor to be Perfect so that no one will ever reject you. Perfection came to earth and humanity rejected him. Maybe that'll help you get over a little bit of fear of man. (laughs) No, you can't be good enough for people. We're going to see Jesus rejected. We've been seeing him rejected, but the final rejection comes here at the cross. So as we read through uh, Mark 15, 16 through 39, we'll see him rejected by three people or groups of people. So Mark 15, 16, this is after Pilate now has failed in his attempts to keep Jesus from being crucified. He could have stopped it, right? 
Well, on one, on one sense, because God had already sovereignly decided this was going to happen, no, Pilate couldn't have stopped it. But on a human level, he could have said, this man is not guilty, I will not crucify him. And yet it says, because he wanted to please the crowd, wishing to please the crowd, he relented, ordered Jesus to be scourged, and then handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, this amazing palace built in Jerusalem for Gentiles, large enough, I was reading, for over 100 guests to stay, large enough for the Roman cohort to have their, their barracks there. A cohort is 600 soldiers. You have to have this kind of presence in Jerusalem in order to keep control of a population, especially at the Passover when you're going to have maybe two million Jews there to celebrate the Passover. So you have this fortress, this palace. And they called it the Praetorium because Caesar's elite fighting force was called the Praetorian Guard. Um, They're kind of like SEAL Team 6 of the Roman world. These are trained killers. They're meant to intimidate. The cross meant to intimidate. Don't step out of line. Public display of pain and suffering and humiliation. Designed to keep people subdued. Keep people in their place. And so they called the whole Roman cohort together. I don't know if it was all 600, because some of them obviously needed to to stay at their posts and maintain peace and order during the Passover. But a large, large number of Roman soldiers called together, and they dressed him up in purple. And after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. These thorns I was reading six to eight inches long. Caesar wore a wreath which symbolized his, his power, his authority. The winners in the Olympic Games would be given a wreath to wear. So this was a crown to mock Jesus for his claim to be the king of the Jews. These are some of the same men that just earlier that night went to arrest Jesus. And we read in John's Gospel that when Jesus speaks the name of God and says, I am, they fall to their knees, not out of respect, but out of fear. Jesus peeled back the humility of his humanness and let them see just a bit of divinity, and it was enough to send them to their knees. And now his full humanity is on display, scourged and meek, humble, bleeding, weak, not fighting back, not answering. And they feel empowered to mock him, spit on him, sad because we know Jesus is God and to see human beings mocking the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, and their creator to mock him in this way. 
For anybody to be mocked this way is, is disgusting. It, it brings feelings of injustice and outrage. I, I can't stand... I, I won't look at the images coming from the Middle East right now. I can't. I can't do it. I can't tolerate it to, to, for another human being to be treated that way by, by another human being. And I know that's exactly what it's designed to do, to intimidate, to demoralize. And so they're intimidating and they're demoralizing Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews, sarcastically. They kept beating his head with a reed which would drive the thorns in deeper. One of the other Gospels, they even said they put the reed in his hand like a scepter. Well, he beat him over the head with his own scepter. Scepter, a symbol of authority and power, and they're using it to, to beat him over the head with it. Spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. You get a picture there. Maybe nothing more humiliating in an honor-shame culture than to spit in somebody's face. Fortunately, we saw that in the news recently. A fiance spitting in her soon-to-be husband's face, and he punched her. You're familiar with the story. Ray Rice, the football player, caught on tape in a Vegas elevator. Don't spit in people's faces. Don't spit in God's face. You could preach a whole sermon on that. Humanity spitting in God's face. That is a picture of our rejection of God. God, the perfect one, the holy one, creates a universe that can sustain life and creates life in His image and gives life and breathes His own life into the nostrils of man to give Him life and desires relationship with man. He doesn't need relationship with man. There's nothing lacking in the Godhead. This is a God who loves, who loves relationship. He did, did this because of his own character. On some level, it would be similar to a child spitting in his own parent's face. I gave you life. I changed you, fed you, diapered you. Dropped a couple hundred thousand dollars raising you. I just want relationship with you and the proverbial spit in the face. No thank yous, no I don't want relationship with you is what we're saying to God, this rejection. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him and they led him out to be crucified. And we get this strange... Uh, Excursus. An excursus is when you're reading a, a textbook and they stop in the middle of the lesson for a little side note, a little sidebar, a little, little box at the corner of the page that's highlighted. Simon of Cyrene. They, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. We're reminded that the original readers of the gospel would know who Alexander and Rufus 
are. Otherwise, why mention them? Cyrene, a North African region. So here's a Jew from North Africa came to Jerusalem for the Passover. One might say he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Or one might say he was at the right place at the right time. I'm sure at the time he felt wrong place, wrong time. Who would want to be affiliated with a man being led to his crucifixion? Have to carry his cross? Could you imagine if we publicly, very publicly, executed criminals in our country and they had to carry their electric chair up to the top of the hill? And they got tired and you were grabbed out of the crowd to drag this electric chair up a hill. And everybody was booing and spitting and mocking and hurling insults. You wouldn't want to be anywhere near that spectacle or associated with it at all. In Romans 16.13, Paul writing to the church at Rome, at the end of his letters, would often say, greet this person, say hello to this person, send my love to this person. And he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Most commentators believe this Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene. You can connect the dots and say Simon was chosen that day by God. And he put his faith in Jesus Christ and led his children to faith and his wife. And this wife of Simon of Cyrene, Paul considered like a mother to him. The most horrible thing somebody could imagine being chosen to do, help somebody carry their instrument of death, turns out to be the vehicle for the greatest blessing this family will ever experience. And ironically, the last time we hear a Simon say he would follow Jesus to his death, who willingly said, I would choose that, denies Jesus three times, and somebody who was not given that choice, but was chosen, had to follow Jesus to his death. A real picture of our salvation. So there's our excursus about Simon of Cyrene, but back to the main drama here. Jesus, then, we see the final rejection by the Jews, by his own people, by his chosen people. The people God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. God says that in Exodus, he says it in Leviticus, it's said again in Jeremiah. I will be your God, you will be my people. These are the people. And the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, these are my people and you will lead them to worship the true God. You will teach them the scriptures, you will teach them how to humbly obey the scriptures, you will teach them their need for a savior, you will teach them their need for atonement through your priestly duties, through the Passover celebration. And yet they did just the opposite. They led the people in utter rejection 
of their God. Again and again in Israel's history, turning from the true God to false gods. The true God showed up, and John 1 says his own did not receive him. So they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The myrrh would have an analgesic effect, a pain-killing effect. Rome knew how utterly horrible crucifixion was, and they would actually take steps in cases to um, shorten the process. You could be on the cross for three or four days, The scourging helped you to die sooner. It was an act of mercy. And the wine mixed with myrrh would help deaden some of the pain. But he did not take it. And some would say, well, look, that's Jesus saying, I want to feel all the pain. And yet, a reading of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about the crucifixion, The more you read it, the more you realize what a lack of detail there is about the actual physical pain. That's not the point. Mel Gibson got it wrong. He overplayed the physical horror of the cross. Something much worse. Nathan preached to us something much worse. What would make Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and ask that this cup be taken from him? In 70 AD, when when Titus Vespasian would would conquer Jerusalem, he would crucify over 30,000 men, women, and children. So if Jesus' death on the cross was merely just a painful experience, physically, then, well, other people certainly have suffered much worse pain. Let's not... Focus on the physical pain. I think Jesus didn't take the wine mixed with myrrh because the physical pain was nothing compared to what he was about to experience. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide which each man should take. This was actually meant to be some kind of reward for Roman soldiers who had to carry out crucifixion. It was such dirty work. They had to stay there in shifts and watch the body and make sure nobody took, took the body down off the cross prematurely. And so part of their reward was they got to divvy up the possessions of, of the dead, their garments. This also fulfilled prophecy. It was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They would write the the charges above your head so everyone would know what crime you committed. We read, I believe, in Matthew's Gospel that the Jews did not want Pilate to write this inscription over Jesus' head. And yet... We learned in the last two weeks that Pilate had no love for the Jewish people at all. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. 
This was his last snub. Hey, this is your king, not mine. Remember, you said I should kill him because he calls himself a king and there's only one king but Caesar. I said, there's nothing in this man worthy of death. And you said, sedition, he's trying to overthrow the empire. That was your charge, O leaders of the Jews. So that is what we're going to put on the cross. And he put it in three languages, just in case. And so let the record show that that is officially what God's own chosen people killed him for, for being their king. We don't want a king. Not like this one, anyways. They crucified two robbers with them, one on his right and one on his left. Remember, the center cross was reserved for Barabbas, but they asked that Barabbas go free. If you're here last week, we learned that the name Barabbas in the Aramaic means son of the father, Bar-Abbas, son of Abba, father, son of the father. So the son of the father did take Barabbas' place. You and I are, are Barabbas. We're set free, so the innocent one takes our place on the cross. Numbered with the transgressors to fulfill the scriptures. So much scripture fulfilled by Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him. Who are these people that can watch somebody suffer on a cross and hurl insults? They were wagging their heads. What a great picture that is. It's a hard hard uh, word in the Greek to translate. That'll suffice. Wagging their heads. The, the root of the word there refers to the, the nose, actually. Almost look looking down your nose at someone. Look at him. Not so powerful now. Not such a big shot now, are you? Ha! You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Wow, is that statement just pregnant with irony. Save yourself? He's on the cross to save us. If he came down, we wouldn't be saved. Praise God, he stayed on there till it was finished. When he said he would tear down the temple and rebuild in three days, he was speaking of his body. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. He said, I have authority to take my life and I have authority to raise it back up. Nobody takes my life from me. He's doing exactly what he said he would do. And of course, everybody else is doing exactly what he said they would do. But they're so blinded by their pride and their hatred and their self-preservation that they can't see 
They can't see that they're walking right into the story that was written before time began. And they had the Scriptures, and the Scriptures said this would happen. This is what would happen to the Messiah. They have Isaiah 53. I encourage you, write that down. Read Isaiah 53 this week many times. Meditate on Isaiah 53. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Again, he doesn't need to save himself. The fact that they acknowledge that he saved others, he healed them, he made them well, he delivered them from demons. They're heaping condemnation on themselves while they're scorning Jesus. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe Oh, the sarcasm is disgusting. Let this Christ, this Messiah, see, they don't say the Messiah, this false Messiah, this phony Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. I wonder if Jesus did come down, would they believe? You hear this often from unbelievers, especially the sophisticated, the elite, people too smart for their own good. Well, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? And, and they say, you know, well, if right now he came down and spoke to me literally, and what did Jesus say about the rich man and Lazarus? If, could you let me just go back and... and talk to my family, and Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to, to them, then they're not going to listen to somebody coming back from the dead. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him, although we know that one eventually repented. And he got down off the cross and he did a bunch of good works and Jesus accepted his... No. Not much time to do good works when you're being crucified. He says, wait a minute. We deserve this punishment. He doesn't. And God opens his eyes while he's on the cross and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, as horrible as this rejection was, if we put ourselves in Jesus' sandals, nobody would want to go through this. And yet we read of Christian martyrs all the time who have to endure this. And so they can't be all that the cross means. There's a, a final rejection here. As bad as it was to be rejected by the Jews and by the Gentiles, by humanity, 
Ultimately, Jesus, because He was bearing our sins on the cross, was rejected by God the Father. His sacrifice isn't rejected, but because we, our sins, are on Jesus, God the Father treated Jesus the way we deserved to be uh, treated. We rejected God. The penalty for rejecting God is death, which ultimately is rejection by God, separation from God, no relationship with God. The horror of the cross was that God the Son lost relationship with God the Father. That ought to tell you something about what's most important to God and what should be most important to us. When the sixth hour, which was 12 noon, came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Where are you? I can't find you. I need you. Utter darkness. The scapegoat on the cross. Cursed is any man who dies on a tree, the Scriptures say. Part of Israel's tradition was they would bring in a goat, which was where we get the term scapegoat, scapegoat, escape goat, or scapegoat. The high priest would put his hands on the goat and the sins of the people would go onto the goat and then they would release the goat out of the community, out of the blessing of God, the protection of God, the Shekinah glory of God, out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why is there weeping and gnashing? Because we can't find God. Even unbelievers... Even unbelievers get to enjoy the common grace of God while on this earth. They don't realize it or recognize it or acknowledge it, but the blessing of God, the safety of God, the beauty of God, the love of God, they still get to enjoy that in some way. But once you leave the presence of God, which is where unbelievers say they would like to be, but no, it's utter darkness, pain, misery, fear, unquenchable torment. The one thing that can bring me relief, I can't find it. Jesus on the cross experiencing that utter darkness, that darkness that fell over the land was metaphorical for what Jesus was encountering on that cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? For all eternity, I've known perfect relationship with you. This is what Jesus wanted to avoid in the garden. Not the physical pain, not the torment, not the mocking, not the the scoffers. You know, when, when you're God, there's no fear of man. Ah, mock all you want. I know who I am. This was what he wanted to avoid. This was the cup of wrath he he didn't want to have to drink. For 
us who believe will never have to experience this kind of rejection. Praise God. And yet I tremble and my heart weeps, like Paul says in Romans, that if, I, if it were possible that I could trade my salvation with people I love, people I know who are not in Christ, who think they've chosen the better path, the path of freedom, and yet have chosen the path of bondage, and eventually the path of utter despair, eternal separation from God. My heart breaks. They bought the lie. And if they don't repent, they'll soon find out that they were duped. The penalty for rejecting God is death. The Bible is clear about that. God was clear in Genesis 3, right? If you eat from the one tree I commanded you not to eat from, you will surely die. And they understood through God teaching them what that death would be. You don't need to experience everything to understand what it means. This kind of death entails a physical death, although Adam and Eve didn't physically die immediately, but there's a spiritual death. They did spiritually die in that moment. Separation from God. They hid from Him, right? This God that they never had to hide from, never had to worry about God knowing their innermost being. They hid from one another and started blaming each other. They went from this beautiful marriage, this companionship of perfect openness and love and trust to that woman you gave me. It's her fault. They hid behind fig leaves because they were naked and ashamed. God said, who told you you were naked? You know, literally, but metaphorically, who told you you had something to worry about? Who told you to hide? Who told you to wall yourself off from others? Of course, these are rhetorical questions. God already knew the answer. The eternal death is the final death. It's what Revelation calls the second death. Separation from God's fellowship forever. Unlike us, God is free to love unconditionally. He didn't have to create us or give himself to us. Because he's a God of love and a God of relationship, in his character he chose to make humanity, chose to make us in his image, chose to breathe the breath of life into our nostrils. And the ultimate sin is that humanity said, I don't want you. That was the temptation in the garden. It wasn't just don't listen to the Word of God, but listen to what the temptation was. Did God really say you would die? No, you won't. God's a liar. He's holding back from you. Don't trust Him. Here's a God who gives Himself completely to us. We're tempted to think He's holding back. The greatest joy we'll ever experience, ever, is perfect union with God, relationship with God, nothing separating us. God is the prize. 
And Satan tempted man to say, no, there's something better. There's something more. He just doesn't want you to have it. Being your own God, now that's the prize. Yet there can only be one God. There isn't room in the universe for two gods. It's it's either God and not us. We can't have multi-gods. He can't allow it in His holiness. He can't stand for it. A holy God cannot be around sin. And so that's the penalty for sin is death, separation. It's not a spanking. God's character requires that a sinful people can't be around a holy God. He's not going to make Himself not holy for us. Although maybe we would yearn for God to condescend down to our level and be sinners so we can all go, see, nobody's the perfect one. And you know that's the way we think because people who are doing better than us horizontally we get envious of. Oh, you're the perfect one. You, you never do anything wrong. You ne- okay, that's not true. But why are you so angry with that person? So do you really think you'd be happy if God came down to our level? Do you want a God who sins? Do you want a God who's like us, a God we can't trust? Who would you go to? And yet in our fallenness, it's almost what we're demanding. A God like us. Instead, he... He came down in the person of Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, and showed us who we could be. Who we could be if we had a righteousness. Everyone thought they had a righteousness, but their self-righteousness came up far short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And the world said, well, this guy needs to go. We can't have him around here reminding us how far we've fallen short. Instead of saying, now there's beauty, there's perfection, I want to know him. Can you do something to fix me? Jesus says, yes, I can. But only to those who know they need fixing. The necessity of the cross, then, is that in God's economy, according to God's character, who He is and what His justice and holiness demands is somebody had to die. Somebody had to be rejected by God. But if He rejects all of us, then there's no relationship with them. So there's the dilemma. How... Does a just God punish sin the way it needs to be punished and yet not lose relationship with the very people he loves? The cross. A substitute. A substitute. God will treat his own self, his own son, the way we deserve to be treated so that we can have relationship with God. I will reject my own son, God says, so that I can accept you in him. Not apart from him. 
we get a righteousness that is alien to us. It's not our own. It's completely foreign. And Jesus gets a sin nature placed on him that is completely alien to him. He bore our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's not that we become righteous, it's that we get treated as if we are righteous. This is a hard concept for people to grasp because deep down we all want to be righteous on our own, but then you don't need a Savior and the power of the cross loses all its power in your life. If you have your own righteousness, then you don't need the cross. But that's the revelation of the Bible, that we need the cross. We need a righteousness, not our own. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, the unrighteous. Here's a bit of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. You keep reading, and it says that it pleased the Father pleased the Lord, pleased Yahweh to crush His Son. Not that He took pleasure in His Son having to suffer and be separated from Him, but He took pleasure in it because He was gaining and redeeming a humanity, a bride for His Son. A, A gift for His Son, a love offering for His Son, a redeemed humanity. Well, wasn't there any other way that's so extreme? And for years, for 2,000 years, they've been trying to come up with other explanations for the cross. Something other than the penal substitutionary atonement. Lots of different theories out there. You can Google theories of the atonement and you'll get pages of all kinds of theories. Let me share a couple with you and you'll see what they all kind of have in common. can skip the Ephesians 2.4 slide and go to the moral influence theory of the atonement. I only had the Ephesians 2.4 slide up there because it reminds us that we were dead. Not just sick, but dead in trespasses and sin. Dead men don't bring themselves back to life. Why were we dead? Because rejection of God has to lead to death. The most popular theory of atonement that's not the substitutionary atonement of Christ is called the moral influence theory of atonement. According to this theory, the cross is merely a demonstration of God's love that should compel us to love God and love others. Now, certainly, it should compel us to do that. It is a demonstration of God's love. In fact, it says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, one of my favorite verses. 
somebody asked me for a life verse, I would give them Romans 5, 8. It's a precious verse to me. But do you not see the substitutionary atonement right in that verse? Christ died for us. It's not just a, wow, look what he did. Boy, if he could do that, then I certainly can share the last cookie with my brother. Well, certainly it's that, but please say it's more than that. It's not that there was like, well, God could have accomplished the same thing with this, but he chose the extreme because God's awesome and he loves to go to extremes. Well, if it wasn't necessary to crush his own son, I think that would be horrendous for God to say, well, I could have spared my son, but in order to really make a point, I decided to abandon him on the cross. No, it was the only remedy. And these theologians who say there's got to be other theories of the atonement other than this one are somehow trying to get God off the hook for doing this to his son. Because they say, well, I would never do that to my son. A, you're right. No, you wouldn't because you don't love the way God loves. You think you love better than God loves. This is a demonstration of just how much God loves. But more than that, it's a demonstration of just how horrendous our sin is to God and requires death, rejection by God, separation. That's the power of the cross. And you can't tap into that power unless you're willing to admit that, yes, we are just that bad. And yes, God is just that loving. The farther the gap gets between what you think of yourself and what you think of God, the more amazing grace gets. That as long as you're stuck in, I'm really not that bad, then grace isn't so amazing. And the cross is really overkill. It's unnecessary and cruel. Remember the emergent church? We don't hear much about them anymore. Apparently they emerged right into oblivion. (laughs) When you're a church with no truth, then eventually people stop listening. But they used to call the penal substitutionary atonement cosmic child abuse. I believe those are Rob Bell's words. They say God doesn't have to sacrifice his son. He's God. He he could have done it any way he wanted to. Well, that's true. But God, in his character, who he is, cannot violate his own nature and character. He's a God that is perfectly holy, perfectly just, and perfectly loving. The only way to keep all three of those things in view without violating them is the cross. It's the cross. There's where justice and mercy collide. Someone else will take the penalty for us, but somebody has to take the penalty. The problem is for finite beings like ourselves, the penalty would have spelled final doom for all of us, final eternal separation, but an infinite God can handle an infinite punishment. Another theory is called the governmental theory of atonement. This was championed by Charles Finney, which some of you may know as a great evangelist in history. He was a lawyer before he became a pastor, theologian, evangelist. And he said that 
The cross was so that God could be seen as just. If you continually allow people to get away with stuff, then eventually your government falls apart. But because God loves us and didn't want to take it out on us, he needed somebody to prove that God means business. Kind of like the parent who's constantly telling their kids, I mean it, last time, I'm going to count to three, and you better, five, I'm going to count to five, ten, wait till your dad comes home. You're in, you're in big trouble. Well, eventually your kids learn you can get away with it. The law is not the law. So the governmental theory of atonement said God had to punish Jesus on the cross so people would know he means business. And they point to Romans 3, 25 and 26, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. They say, see, lots of people got away with sin it seemed to them. So Jesus coming to die on the cross is proof that people didn't actually get away with their sins. When God said, you will die, he meant it. That is true. But again, that is not all of what the cross means. Look, the word propitiation is right in the verse, which means the satisfaction of God's wrath. This actually accomplished something real. The wrath of God was satisfied by Jesus dying in our place. It wasn't just to let us all know God means business. That would be like if your son committed sin and you spanked your daughter just to let him know. I mean business. That's ridiculous, right? Your poor daughter's like, what? Well, you know how your brother is. His tushy's kind of, it can't handle a spanking, but you can. That doesn't, that's not what the cross means. And if that were the case, then God failed in his mission because I don't see that people have stopped sinning. Now, the power of the cross is that it has to fit in with the revelation of God, what the actual story of the Bible is teaching us. God offered himself to man, union with God. That was the prize. God's the prize. The relationship with God is the prize. Man rejected God. He said, I don't want the prize. I want a different prize. And because of that, we reject others. I don't want you. I want what you can do for me. I want how you can make me feel about myself. That's always like the hardest thing to realize after you get married is that all that wooing of your future spouse was so she'd be impressed with you. And she was wooing you so you'd be impressed with her. And then after you say your I do's, you realize you're stuck with two people who want the other person to be fascinated with you. And you have to learn to love sacrificially and die to self and and just learn to love another person. And the cry of everyone's heart is to just be loved. I just want to be loved. I just want to be accepted for who I am. If you knew me really, would you still want me to be your pastor? If you knew who I really was, would you still want to be my wife? Would my kids still want me as their father? Or should I just keep playing the game we all play? 
put my fig leaf on every morning. You know, the sad thing is, is that the people who know you best can see right through the fig leaf. And it's exasperating to them that you're playing this game. You think I'm so shallow that I would reject you if you were honest with who you are as a person? Yes. <laughs> so much better to, in Christ, be able to say, I'm accepted in Christ, so I don't need to be afraid of being rejected by man. Stop playing the game. Let's strive for real, meaningful, transparent relationships. That we, because of the power of the cross, we can love each other this way. Beloved, I know it'll be hard because we've been practicing our whole lives to love each other the other way. And sometimes we settle for less, but I tell you, it always ends in ruin. Eventually, if you're going to tiptoe around the issues to avoid the fight, to avoid the blow-up, to avoid the hurt feelings, it will come out eventually. So much better to just head it off now and look at the cross and say, because we're all accepted unconditionally by God because of what Christ did, we can learn to love one another for who we are. Now, God loves us so much that he doesn't leave us where we're at when he saves us. Thank God for sanctification. But I want to read you a quote from this book, Gospel and Life. It's a, it's a Bible study by Timothy Keller. Our high schoolers are going through it right now. I'm so glad. The high schoolers can understand this. They can pick up on this. And the sooner you learn it, the less you have to walk through life learning the gospel the wrong way. And then you have to later undo all of that wrong thinking and all those ruts that you've put in place. If only we can grasp the gospel early in life. God took the penalty on himself. God the Father separated himself from God the Son so we don't have to be separated anymore. God is offering himself to us again and made a way for us to actually accept the offer. We've already rejected God as sinners, but he's saying it's, it's not over. I'm still offering myself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, is this eternal life not just not dying? Well, it's not talking about physical, literal death, because we all still die. It's saying we can have an eternal relationship with God and don't need to be separated from Him forever. You want to know what eternal life is? Ask Jesus, the giver of life. What's He saying? John 17, 3. It's up there. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent, to have union with God the Father and God the Son. We get to be part of that union. Perfect relationship, perfect friendship with God. It's not like any other friendship we have because He's God. But now we love Him and we want to obey His commands. Why wouldn't we? He's God. His commands are good for me. They're meant for my good and my protection. There can only be one God, so He's going to be the God. I'm not going to try to be the God anymore. That didn't work out so well. Have you received Christ, or have you received information about Christ? I, I know you're all professing believers, but 
Do you have relationship with Christ? Or have you memorized facts about Christ? Is He really your Savior? Or do you say He's my Savior, but the way you live your life tells the rest of us, you're your own Savior. Listen to this quote. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. In other words, there's this power of the cross available to us, but it has to be appropriated. You have to tap into it. And here's how you tap into it. Many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. They draw on their, uh, their assurance of acceptance with God based on their own sincerity or religious performance. Do you know that salvation is by grace? And yet so many of us, as we're walking through life, are not appropriating the power of the cross. We go right back to work salvation in our sanctification. Well, God has to accept me. Look at all the things I did. You have to accept me. Look at all the things I did for you. Look at all the good works I did for you. All the sacrifices I made for you. You want to destroy a relationship in a hurry? Remind the person you're trying to love everything you had to give up for them and everything you do for them. And it, oh my goodness. This isn't about me in relationship with me. This is about you. You're not giving yourself to me. You're giving yourself to yourself. Leave me out of it. Cut out the middleman. Just stand in the mirror and tell yourself how great you are. Don't expect the rest of us to tell you. Be humble and receive your compliments through the back door when you least suspect it, and certainly when you're not demanding it. Man rejects God, receives Christ to pay for the penalty of rejecting God, and then turns right back around and rejects God again through religion. People, let's not do that. Tim Keller says, people tend to think there are two ways to relate to God, to follow Him and do His will, or to reject Him and do your own thing. We get that. He's saying there's actually two ways to reject God as Savior. One is the obvious through rebellion. The other, though, is trying to be really righteous and moral so you don't need a Savior anymore. So there's really three ways to relate to God, religion and irreligion and the gospel. The power of the cross is that we can relate to God through the gospel. Not only did I need him to save me, I need him to sanctify me. The power of the cross frees us to admit we are still rejecting God. We can recognize and repent from our fatal flaws. We can listen to other people's input about our lives and not be afraid they're rejecting us. Oh, to live in a community where everybody knows they're loved. Not because of their performance, because God loved me unconditionally so I can love others unconditionally. doesn't mean I'm not going to speak truth in love to you. doesn't mean I might, I'm not going to call you out on your sins, but I'm going to do so in a way that makes it obvious to you that I know all too well that I've got a log in my eye. The power of the cross 
Paul writes, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. See, when you count all things as lost and count Jesus as the prize, then when Jesus gives you things like health or wealth or whatever, you can accept those as, hey, that's just gravy. You could take it away too and it won't matter because I have Christ. And then your friendships blossom and flourish. Hey, I love you as long as I have you. I don't really care what you do for me or don't do for me. I don't care what kinds of things we can buy or don't buy or places we can go or don't. Wherever you are, that's happiness. That's home. I could live in a mansion or a hovel as long as you're there. Boy, aren't those the words we all long to hear. Those are the words we can hear from our Savior. We can't bring him anything. He, He owns everything. He just wants relationship with us and he's made a way on the cross for us to have that kind of relationship So we are now free to love God and love others in the same way.